You know, for those of you that are new to us, we want to welcome you and we hope that you enjoy your time with us. We're on week five of a series. We're looking at the book of Ephesians, which is a book in the New Testament that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And when we came to chunk up who was going to do what between me and Dan on this and said, All right, I'll do this and you do that and I'll do that. When it came to the last two weeks, I said, okay, I'll take the last two weeks. And this week, week five, I'll take all that stuff there where it talks about the practical stuff of what does it mean to live out your identity in the world. And then, so I said that from chapter four, verse 17 to chapter six, verse nine, I'll do all of that. So last week, Dan did an amazing job on his 10 verses and his six points. Today, I've got 36 points to cover in these verses, which I'll I'll try and condense a little bit. It's amazing, amazing stuff. And in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins to paint this picture of the unsearchable riches of Christ and and who you are when you're a Christian and and what you've got in your relationship with God. And in chapter 2, it talks about how low we were and how high we were and uh, and says just how how much God has done for us. And chapter 3, we talked about the mystery of the revelation of Christ, which is the church. Chapter 4, we looked at what the church means, that we're not just together, but we're one. But then in chapter 5, Paul really now wants to intensely ground it into practical living. If you really are a believer in Christ, and I'm not saying that everyone here is, you may not be, but if you are, then this is how you're meant to live in the world. So come with me in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 24. Paul says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord. Alright, so he's really serious about what he's about to say here. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. My question to you this morning is, how's your old man? Now you may know that phrase, if you're British, if you're not British, forgive me, that's kind of a British phrase, as your old man, it can refer to the husband or it can refer to the father, as your old man. And this concept of the old man and the new man is what Paul introduces here and in his writings in the New Testament he talks a lot about this, sometimes he calls it the old self and the new self, sometimes the old man and the new man, sometimes the old nature and the new nature. It's kind of pre and post, before and after, was and is. And to help, because this is, inc- I've got a lot of teaching, which is more like a seminar this morning. So to try and make it a bit visual, I'm going to kind of demonstrate a few things for you. And I'm going to introduce to you the old man, and over here, the new man. And we're going to look at some of the, if you like, compare and contrast between the old man and the new man. And then at the end, we're going to look at something, we're going to look at both those, and then we're going to ask some really searching questions, and then... Hopefully there's going to be some revelation comes as we understand how we're meant to live as the new man and not as the old man. And in order to start, Paul begins by saying that where it all starts is in the issue of our thinking. The way we think has to change when we become a Christian. 
And he says, you, before you were a Christian, before you follow Christ, he says, you were living in the futility of your thinking. And that word futility there means void of purpose or appropriateness. It's pointless. Now, thinking in the Bible is not related to intellectual knowledge alone. The mind, when the Bible talks about the mind, it means reason, understanding, conscience and affections. It's like the inner man. We've talked about that quite a lot. And we've said the truth will set you free. But, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we act and behave not in accordance with the truth, but in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. Understand what I'm saying? So we don't act and behave in accordance with the truth. We act and behave in accordance with the truth as we perceive it to be. And so if someone looks in the mirror who's incredibly thin and thinks that they're really fat and overweight... That's not the truth, but the truth as they perceive it is that. We think someone thinks something about us. It may not be the truth, but it's our truth. And it becomes imprinted within our psyche, within our inner man, our inner woman, and nothing dislodges it. And we gather evidence to prove the truth and that which we believe. You with me? That's how we as human beings act. And Paul says, you used to live in this futility of thinking, but now you're in Christ. You're a new man. You shouldn't be thinking like that any longer. J.B. Phillips is a Bible translator. He translates this verse. Do not live as the Gentiles live, for they live blinded in a world of illusion. And when your thinking is old man thinking, this is what happens. It says, um, you're darkening your understanding. You're separated from the life of God. There's a hardening of your heart. You lose sensitivity and you give yourselves over to all kinds of sensuality. So when you live in the old way of thinking, the old man thinking, the pre-Christ thinking, that's what happens. Now here's a thought. Is it possible to be a Christian and still have old man thinking? You bet your life it is. And when we live with old man thinking, what happens is that we get separated from the life of God. Our hearts harden. We lose our sensitivity to the Spirit. And before you know where we are, we give ourselves over to all kinds of sensuality and behaviour. Some years ago I heard a story, a true story about a pastor of a church. And he'd got into an affair with a member of the church. And when he finally came to his senses and he repented and he, and he kind of, you know, got real about the whole thing, this is what he said. The very first time I had sex with that woman, I felt so guilty for weeks and weeks and weeks. I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. The second time I had sex with her, it only lasted days. The third time, hours. By the fifth, sixth and seventh time, as soon as we'd finished, I forgot it and went out and preached. Paul says what's happened is that you've got separated from the life of God. You're darkened. Your heart is hard. You lose your sensitivity. Things that used to bother you don't bother you any longer. It's old man thinking. Carl Jung was an Austrian psychologist and he wrote this amazing quote. All right, It's a little deep but if you can bear with it, it's just phenomenal. He said, those psychiatrists who are not superficial have come to the conclusion that the vast neurotic misery of the world could be termed a neurosis of emptiness. Men cut themselves off from the root of their being, from God, and then life turns empty, inane, meaningless, without purpose. So when God goes, goal goes. When goal goes, meaning goes. When meaning goes, value goes, and life turns dead in your hands. Isn't that phenomenal? psychologist there saying that when you cut yourselves off from God, life turns empty. It's old man thinking. I'll ask you a question this morning. Where do you go when your marriage is in trouble? 
You go to OK, Hello Magazine, or do you go to Christ? Where do you go when you want to seek character change? Do you go to Oprah Winfrey? Or all of the self-help programs? There's nothing wrong with many of those. Or do you go to Christ? Because Christ has something to offer you that self-help programs will never, ever offer you. You cannot, you cannot change spiritual transformation if you are not connected to the source of spiritual life. You see, everything else, and we'll show later, is behavioral management. And God has called us to something greater than just behavioral management. So I want to ask you a question this morning is, how is your old man, new man thinking? And Paul says, of course, the truth is what sets you free. But in verse 21, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth. Listen, that is in Jesus. Truth is not an abstract concept. Truth is expressed in a person, the person of Christ. The truth that sets us free is not an abstract concept, it's assimilating, it's yielding to, it's submitting to the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the truth. And if the truth sets you free, then you're free indeed. So old man thinking is pointless. But new man thinking is purposeful. Okay. Point one of 36. Number two. The way we speak, we'll just say a couple of things about this. It says in verse 25, each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. Don't lie. And then in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now, I want you to know the context for where he talks about how you speak is very important. It's never about the individual. It's always about the community. So he says in verse 25, Put off falsehood, speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we're all members of one body. So speak truthfully, don't lie, because we're, we're connected to one another. And then in verse 29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only what is helpful for building others up. You see, the old man's speech is often destructive, whereas the new man's speech is always constructive. You see, even when we speak the truth in love to one another... It's constructive, not destructive. Let's go on. The way we handle our emotions, especially the big emotion of anger. How do we handle our anger? Verse 26 to 28. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. We live in a day where tolerance, tolerance is the catchword, but rage is the emotion of choice. You notice that? We're all about being a tolerant society, but rage is often the emotion of choice these days. And so not only do we get road rage, but at Christmas apparently we get grotto rage. And we get sale rage, and we get all kinds of rage. And isn't it funny how in such a tolerant society, rage seems to be on the increase. Anyone ever seen the film Falling Down? With Michael Douglas, a film of the 80s. What an amazing film. Normal guy on his way home from the office one day. Has to get to, 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 his, his, to see his son or his daughter. I can't remember now. I've seen it years ago. And he's in a horrendous traffic jam. And he's starting to lose his temper. He gets out and the car gets broken into. And he, he gets mugged by someone. And he has, a, he has an altercation with a shopkeeper. And in the end, he just loses it completely. He gets shotguns out. He falls down completely. Total right. It's like a picture of our society and of our culture in many ways. Guy in America that's in a divorce court and the, the judge says, right, half your stuff to you, half to your wife. He gets a chainsaw, chainsaw and chops his house in half. Woman who realises that her boyfriend's infected her with the AIDS virus. So to get revenge, sleeps with 50 men to pass it on. 
In a world of tolerance, rage is often the emotion of choice. How does the old man handle anger? I think it's kind of two extremes. Extreme number one, let it all out. Vent it indiscriminately, disproportionately. Let everyone have it. As long as it's out, then it's healthy, isn't it? No, it's not. Not biblically, it's not. The self-help stuff might say that, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Anger is not sin, but what you do in your anger can become sin. In your anger, which is a legitimate emotion, do not sin. When we vent it out indiscriminately, disproportionately, that's what happens. It's like jumping into a Ferrari, revving it up, putting your foot on the accelerator, shooting off and then realising the brakes don't work. That's what happens when we disproportionately vent our anger. Study in Iowa State University in the States concluded that people who vent their anger like this are more likely over time to become more aggressive. But Jesus was angry, wasn't he? Jesus was angry in the temple. Yes, he was angry in the temple. But that wasn't because he lost his car keys or he was stuck in traffic. Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, said anyone can become angry. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose and in the right way, this is not easy. To be appropriately angry is not easy. When we vent it out indiscriminately, disproportionately, it's old man thinking. But the other extreme is also old man, where we bottle it up and keep it locked in tight. That's equally old man behaviour. You see, anger that's expressed and vented like that can lead to aggression. Anger that's internalised can, not always, can lead to depression. Someone once said that depression is anger without enthusiasm. And it can happen like that. So how does the new man handle anger? Well, he or she, and can I say that when I say man, I'm not talking gender. You know that, don't you? This is not male or female. This is mankind. So when I say new man, it's a woman as well. New man, new woman. How does the new man handle anger? We acknowledge it, we express it appropriately and proportionally, we ensure it's short-lived. The Bible says, don't let the sun go down. Now, I don't think that means that, especially husband and wives, if you're having a row, that you must deal with it that night. I don't think it means that. Sometimes the best thing you can do is shut up, be on your own, go to sleep and talk about it in the morning. What it does mean is that you make sure it's short-lived. That's what it means. You don't let it go on and on and on. And there's so many marriages and relationships that when they start really dealing with their issues, they're dealing with issues from years ago, not weeks. It says, please deal with your anger. Make sure it's short-lived. And don't give the devil a foothold. And that word foothold means place or possibility or opportunity. So when you hold on to anger... You create a place or an opportunity for the devil. You create a foothold for him. And the devil, the word diabolos in the original means slanderer. What the devil does is he loves an opportunity where he can slander you and bring you down, break open your relationships. He loves that. And we give it to him. We give it to him. When we allow our anger to be like that. So how's our anger management? Old man anger management is nearly always unhealthy. Whereas new man anger management is healthy. Let's go on. I'm going to put the next two together. The way we work and the way we treat others. Verse 28. It says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer. There's a word there. He who is stealing must steal no longer, but must work 
doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Then in verse 31, the way we treat others, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another. Now when he talks about the way we work, and we'll talk about work a little later, and the way we treat each other, I want you to notice something that he always talks about here in terms of how you are with others, isn't about you, it's about them. So even when he uses the word kind, which is the Greek word krestos, the idea behind this word is that you treat others as if you're treating yourself. Not as you'd like to be treated, as if you were treating yourself. So I treat you as if that's me. You see, the old man, when it comes to work, and work, that's an interesting one, you work not just to get a job and pay the bills, but you work so that you will have something for the sake of others. It's an interesting twist, isn't it? We don't work... Just so we can pay the bills. We work so that we create stuff that we can help others with. You see, the old man works and treats others in a very selfish way. Whereas the new man, the new woman, treats others and works in a selfless way. Now, when you're doing this kind of teaching, which is called expositional, if you want the big words, okay... It means that you don't have the luxury of missing out those really difficult things that you don't want to talk about. Now I've tried to see if I can work around the next bit, but I really can't. Because in this passage of scripture, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, three times Paul talks about sex and sexuality. So we're going to talk about sex and sexuality this morning. Is that okay? Okay. Now you see, I don't know why we don't talk about it as Christian people. And we don't, why we don't talk about it more in church, because we really ought to. Little kid goes up to his mom and says, Mom, can you tell me where I came from? And she's like embarrassed and she says, Well, you came from this bird, it's called a stork, and it kind of and all this stalk's rubbish. So he thought, I'm not sure about that. So he went to his nan and said, Where did I come from? The nan did a variation on the stork story. So the next day in the playground he said to his kid, You never get our family is weird. We haven't had a normal birth for three generations. It's just like you know. We should talk about this stuff much more because it's fundamental to who we are fundamental to who we are. And Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 5, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Not even a hint of sexual immorality. That's really strong, given the context of the day that Paul was writing in. You need to understand this. So do you remember in in session 1, I gave you the cultural and historical background to Ephesus, and we put up that picture, do you remember, of Diana, Artemis? Diana in the in Roman, Artemis in the Greek, the many-breasted one. You remember that, men? Remember that picture? And, and this, this goddess of fertility, massive statue, and I've seen the statue myself in, in, in Ephesus in this museum. It's horrible. And people would worship this statue, this goddess of fertility. And that statue stood and looked out over a city where thousands of people were searching and seeking for sexual gratification and satisfaction. Now you've got to understand the context Paul's writing. The Greeks praised the temple prostitutes for their spiritual service, is what they called it. The Greek writer Demosthenes, who's 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 a historian, and this is horrendous, he wrote this, We have boys for our pleasure, harlots for our daily use, that's prostitutes, and wives for the procreation of legitimate children. That was the culture that Paul was writing into. We have boys for our pleasure, prostitutes for our daily use, and wives for the procreation of legitimate children. The Romans, if you were in the higher echelon of Roman society, your kid, a son, would not only have his math tutor and his sports tutor, he'd also have his sex tutors, male and female. 
And the culture that Paul wrote into when he said there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Wow, that's the culture. Now, that's Ephesus, 60, 61 AD. How's our culture when it comes to sex and sexuality? Haven't we moved on a long way? Haven't we got so civilised? Haven't some of those issues which are so old and so barbaric and so ancient, we now, we know lots of things because we can Google and we can SMS and we can Facebook and we can Twitter and we've moved away from that kind of obsession with sex and sexuality, haven't we? No. And the old man views sex and sexuality in a certain way. The new man has to look at it and view it and handle it in a completely different way. What about our context? What about our Ephesus? Sex is everywhere, isn't it? Can't get away from it. Our young people growing up in a more and more sex-obsessed culture. And I'm, I'm certainly not promoting the idea of going back to Victorian values when it comes to sex and sexuality. So if you know anything about that, the Victorian view of sex and sexuality underneath the surface, surface was actually horrendous. Because on the surface it was all Whatever, it's all very straight-laced. And I think about it and I think, could it be that a new man, a new woman, someone filled with the Spirit of Christ could have hang-ups in this area? Survey in the States, and I don't think it's very different in the UK, reckons that 23% of pastors have had sexual activity outside of their marriage. And lay leaders in the church, life group leaders and other leaders, and lay leaders in the church, that figure is closer to 45%. Paul uses the word in, in his writings, the word porneia a lot in the Greek. It's where we get the word pornography from. And the sad truth, folks, is that our culture, including new men and new women, we have an unhealthy view of sex and sexuality. Now, I said at the nine o'clock service, all right, and I said it with a lot of passion, I came away from the script, which is always dangerous, but I'm not down on sex. And then this is what I said, I'm up for sex. And that, that, that got quite a reaction at the nine o'clock service. <laughs> But I really genuinely am, because sex is a fantastic, awesome thing. It's a great gift that God has given us. But we have to get clarity on how we view this whole thing of sex and our sexuality. How does the old man view sex and sexuality? It's nearly always uncontained. No boundaries, no parameters. The new man, not restricted but is always in a contained environment. When I used to go into schools and talk about sex um, with kids years ago, when I was younger and a little more cred in that area than I am now, I used to say that sex is like plutonium. If you've got plutonium, it's so powerful, so dangerous, you have to hold it in the right container. And sex is like that. It's fantastic, it's awesome, but, and it's powerful, but it's dangerous. It has to be held in the right container. And I want to declare to you this morning, we believe, and Paul believed, we believe that the right container for the expression of sex and our sexuality is the container of marriage. And within that, we have to deal with the issues of pornography. We have to deal with the issues of our sexuality. But the unhealthy, the old man, is in an uncontained way. The new man will always be more contained. Now, as you look at all of that, here's the question. As your old man. Because <laughs> I don't know about you, but when I looked at this and I wrote it all down, I actually stopped at this point and I thought, oh my life, I'm supposed to be over here, but actually in loads of ways, I identify anyone else like me or not. All right, three of us. The rest of you are all saints, right? 
Is my thinking pointless at times? Am I locked into this futility of thinking which is dead? Or is my thinking purposeful? Is my speech destructive? Or is it constructive? How I handle my anger, is it unhealthy? Do I vent or do I internalize? Or is it healthy? The way I work and the way I treat others, is it selfish? Do I treat others because I want to be treated well? Or is it selfless? The way I view and handle sex and sexuality, is it uncontained? Or is it contained? And when you look at that, you might think, well, this is pretty discouraging. You might actually look and think, do you know what? I could be a professing, what is it, a professing Christian and a practicing atheist. Couldn't you? We could actually be termed enthusiastic dualists. What on earth is that? An enthusiastic dualist is somebody who lives in this kind of world, but then comes through like the turnstile. Imagine the football match. You go through a turnstile into this world, the Christian world, the spiritual world, and you come to church and you go to Soul Survivor and you, put, and you watch the God channel and you're full of God and you're passionate and you love God and you sing songs like, I'm living for your glory, I want to be pure, I want to be holy, and you really mean it. But then when you go to the turnstile into this world, you sleep with whoever you want to sleep with, watch whatever you want to watch with, talk however you want to talk, just like you used to before. Now let me just say something. I'm not saying that all non-Christians are bad and all Christians are good, because actually some non-Christians are closer to that way of being than that. That's because we're all made in the image of God. But don't be mistaken. If you're not a Christian, you may have some of those things, but you're still separated from the life of God. The Bible says that you're dead and you sin. And you might say, well, I know some Christians and, and, and they're not, you know, non-Christians are nicer than them. And I, I think that's true as well. And that's probably true about me. But I tell you what, I may be bad now. You know what I was like before I had Christ. And the same is true of you. So this is not a down on non-Christian thing. This is just the reality of how we lived when we were separated from God. And now we're alive in Christ, Paul says, so living out like stars in the universe. The problem is... We're meant to be that, but we look and behave often like that, don't we? Now, before you get too discouraged, Paul himself in the book of Romans said this. He said, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Anyone identify with that? I really don't want to do that, but I do. And I really do want to do that, but I don't. Why? Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to put your hands together and welcome a visitor this morning. Fresh from the pages of John chapter 11, I'd like you to welcome Lazarus. And as Lazarus comes to the stage, I'm over here, (laughs) follow the voice. Now, if you remember the story, if you don't know the story, then let me tell you. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus, okay? Jesus loved Lazarus a lot. And the Bible said that Lazarus had two sisters, Martha and Mary, and and they said to Jesus that that, that our brother is sick. And um, Jesus was really gutted about that, but kind of delayed a little bit. And by the time he got to Bethany, the place where he lived, Lazarus had already died and he was in the tomb for three days. And the Bible says there that Jesus wept. He was so touched with the fact that his friend had died. But he didn't just leave his friend there. That what he did do was he spoke and Lazarus came to life again. Lazarus was resurrected. He was a new man. He was a new creation. He'd gone from death to life, literally in every way. But as he came out of the tomb... He still had the old grave clothes around his head, around his hands, and around his feet. We left the feet off just because that would have been a long time coming out of there, okay? And then Jesus said to his disciples, Now, loose him and let him go. 
You see, underneath there is a new man, but there are old grave clothes wrapped around him. Here's the truth that I want you to know, and you may never have heard this before, and I'm hoping and praying to God that God by his spirit will give you this in Revelation. The way to live out our life in the real world is a combination of two things. We must take off the old and we must put on the new. Paul uses it in the terms of, and often in other books like Colossians and Galatians, as in clothes. We take off these old clothes and we put on the new. So we take off these... Oh, wrong way, I nearly strangled you then, mate. So we take off the... <laughs> There he is. We take off these old clothes. These are grave clothes. This is the old man thinking. This is death. And we take it off. And we take off all these old clothes. But you know, here's where our culture is struggling. Stay there, Lazarus. If we only do that, what changes? If we only take off the old, if we only change our thinking, if we only stop our practice, what we do, that's called behavioural management. There's nothing wrong with lots of that. I read stuff on that. I go to stuff. I use stuff. But it comes up short. Because if just behavioural management made me the person spiritually I wanted to be, then we'd have all done it a long time ago. The reality is that by just taking off the old, we haven't got the power. We're still spiritually impotent. Because the Bible says not only do we throw off the old things, but we put on the new. We put on the new. And the Bible says this way, in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. Be imitators. It's the word where we get the word mimic from. Be a mimic of God. Well, how do you do that? Just by trying hard? No, by putting on, by putting on the clothes. Oh, get it. <laughs> so, I've got three clothes here that we're going to put on Lazarus. Just to visually explain to you. The first one that Paul talks about is you put on the love of God. So what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, be imitators, just as live a life of love. And in Colossians it says, put on the overcoat of love. You know, we wonder why we don't have the love that we want to have. It isn't by trying harder. It's by living in the love of God. You ain't got anything to give if you haven't received. Corrie Ten Boom, that famous lady that was Jew, that was in the concentration camps in the Second World War. You know the story, I've taught it hundreds of times. And she was abused and her family were abused by, by the guards at the time. Many years later, she was speaking at a large Christian event. She sees on the front row a man and she recognises him as one of the German soldiers that had abused her. Now it's much later on and the man's come to faith. She tells a story of how hate filled up in her heart. And at the end, that the fella comes walking towards her, wanting to reach out her hand. And she's just felt nothing but hate towards this man. Then she says, I just pray, God, please give me the love to love him like you do. And she stretched out her hand. And all of a sudden, that sense of love flooded her life. Now, it doesn't always happen like that. But the point is that she had to throw off the old and then say, God, I need your new. I don't have the love myself to love this man, but you do. And unless we live in the love of God, and like Mike read earlier on, unless we understand that we love by Him, that He rejoices over us, that He delights over us, that He sings over us, and unless we spend time in God's presence, unless we put on the love of God, we'll never have the spiritual energy to do anything. So we live a life of love, just as Christ loved us. That means some of the people that we're finding it really hard to forgive, we'll always find hard to forgive unless we put on the love of God. Unless we remind ourselves of how Christ has loved us, Jesus says that, listen, if you want to forgive others, remember how I've forgiven you. You receive that love, then you've got something to give. The second one that he talks about, 
putting on, if you like, is um, putting on the light of God. This is the second kind of coat that we put on, if you like. And he says it in, in verse 8. For, once, for you were once darkness, but now you're light. Live as children of the light. Clothe yourself, he said in other, in other um, uh, letters. Clothe yourselves in light. You know, if you want to light, light produces fruit. Light exposes darkness. Light gives direction. Light reveals truth. You see, we throw off the old, but unless we're living in the light of God, we'll never create the new. Behavioural management will not do it, folks. We have to live in the light of God. And the final one is we live in the life of God, which speaks to me. Now that's mine, so get your hand out of my wallet. So that's, we live in the life of God, and that talks about the Spirit of God. This is really important. See, I think that often what we do in our culture is that we say, okay, I want to change. Ever thought, will I ever change? Anyone ever thought that? I have loads of things. I know my temper's always been a problem for me. My frustration and demandingness of other people has always been an issue. It probably will be the rest of my life. And sometimes I look and think, will I ever change? And I can try and stop and I can throw off the old. Unless I live in the life and the light and the life of God, I ain't got a chance. It'll still always be a challenge for me. But I know that as I immerse myself more in God's love, God's light, God's life, there's a hope. There's hope. And when you look at that, you can see that actually clothed in those things, we've got a chance. Because not only are we throwing off the old, but now we're living in the new that God gives. Now I want to just say a word about this life of the Spirit. Because I think, yeah, I got off track there. I think what we do in our culture is we say, I'm going to behave and change and do all this kind of stuff. And then the Spirit is what falls on me in the meeting. Do you know what I mean? The Spirit of God is what happens, you know, and I fall on the floor and all that business. And it's not at all can be part of it, but it's really not at all. You see, in verse 18, Paul says this. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Great word, that. Debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, let me say a few words about that, that phrase, be filled with the Spirit. Firstly, it's a command, not a suggestion. All right? Be filled with the Spirit, please, is not what he says. Be filled with the Spirit is a command. Secondly, it's in the plural and not the singular. In other words, it's for everybody, not just for a few. Thirdly, the verb is in the present tense, so it literally says, keep on being filled with the Spirit. You're not being filled once, keep on being filled. And fourthly, the verb is also passive, which means you don't do it, God does it. And Paul says, if you want to live as the new man, you have to live in the life of the Spirit. You need to let God continually fill you with His Spirit. Now here's the thought. We understand filled... As in water, jug, into a glass. It's not what it means. The word filled there literally means controlled by. So in Acts 13 verse 45, it says of the Pharisees, they were filled with jealousy. They were controlled by jealousy. This is important because Paul's saying, don't get drunk on wine, not because I'm a teetotaler or because I'm down on alcohol, but because if you get drunk, you're controlled by that alcohol. I understand this, not because I ever got drunk, because I was brought up in a teetotal environment, brought up in the Salvation Army, so we never drank. All right, I think my sister did a little bit, but I never did. And, and as, <laughs> but that's a whole other talk. And <laughs> sorry, sorry, that was off script. Apologise. And then, so I never drank. And Alison was also in the South, so we never drank. And we even got married, and we never drank. But then, after married, we drank then, <laughs> and we haven't stopped since. But. 
So for me, alcohol isn't a problem biblically at all. Drunkenness is. Drunkenness is. Now, of course, you can define, well, what's drunk and what's not drunk, and that's very great. But listen, the point is this. Paul says, don't get drunk on wine, because you will be filled. You will be controlled by that. Instead, here's a much better way. Be controlled by the Spirit of Christ. Let Him lead you. Let Him guide you. Let Him produce the life of Christ in you. Thank you, Lazarus. Now, round of applause for him. So, I'm going to finish it now. As I read through this passage, I thought, oh, that's great stuff, really quite difficult to get your head around. And then all of a sudden, he talks about wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. What on earth has that got to do? And then I realized what Paul's, Paul's really clever, really clever. All this teaching about new man and old man. And then he says, and you know what? I'm now going to give you the three hardest arenas to live out the new man. Marriage, family and work. How many of you would agree with that? You see, it's great. We can all do the whole Christian thing when we're in church services, when we're in life group, when we're in devotions, when we're on retreats with monks and nuns and all that. That's easy. Marriage, family and work is where I wonder how many of the old men start coming to the surface. How many of the new men disappear, and women, and the old man and woman come to the... I wonder how many on Sundays are new men and women, and on Monday mornings, welcome to the old man and woman. I wonder how many of us are like that. And let me say, just because I could preach for months on, on these passages here, let me say a few things about the language here. There's some loaded words here. Submit is a loaded word. Head is a loaded word. Now, the context... Of wives submit to your husbands. Alright? See, even the way I said that, some of you just sat up a little bit. Wives submit to your husbands. The context of this, see, whenever anybody quotes that verse, I want to slap them really hard. Because it's always a man who's insecure, who's trying to convince his wife what the Bible says is actually proving what the Bible doesn't say. See, the context of this is all in the flow of imitating God. Imitate God. So you live in the love of God. You live in the light of God. You live in the life of the Spirit of God where we're controlled by the Spirit of God. And then verse 21, submit to one another. See, the context for wives submit to the husbands is the context that everyone is meant to be submitting to each other. It's mutuality. It's not about authority. And it's certainly not about the order of authority. It's more about the operation of authority. The other confusing word is the word head. You see? Because it says here, for the husband is the head of the wife. And we all always think about head in terms of hierarchy. So we think there's God, the Father, the Son, uh, 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 Jesus, and then there was Adam, man, and then there was Eve. She's at the bottom. The thing is, that word head means source. It means out of. It's not really about the order of authority, hierarchy. It's more about how it actually develops. So you should really be better, be better to write it, It starts with God. Out of God proceeded Jesus. Out of the word proceeded man. Out of man's side of man proceeded the woman. It's much more about that than it is about that. And so in that context of imitate God, live a life of love, live in the light of God, live in the life of God, he talks into this whole area. You know, if any of us ever throw our weight around as a husband or a wife or as a parent or as a boss, we totally miss the point on what this Bible, the scriptures are all about. I want to say a word to those of you who are married. Your marriage is vitally important. 
And I don't know about all your situations. And I know that I could say something in, a, in just one minute because that's all I've got, which could be hurtful. Please forgive me if I do. I just want to say, your marriage is vitally important to God. And if God brought you together, God's heart and intention is that you stay together. Now, I know some of you haven't done that and your marriage is broken up. And I'm full of compassion and sympathy and love for you this morning. So please don't read it wrong. Your marriage is vitally important. And I want to say, your marriage is meant to be mutual. It's meant to be a partnership. It's meant to be complementary. Guys, don't ever pull this first out to slap your wife. Don't you ever dare do that. When you do that, you lost it. And if you are going to do that, read on. Because it says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for it. So while you're saying, you're on the head and you're meant to submit to me. You then read on. Because then what it says is that you're meant to love your wife as Christ loves the church. Well, my Bible tells me Christ loved the church so much that he washed the feet of his bride. And ultimately he laid down his life for his bride. Didn't he? And if your marriage is in trouble, I want to say, get some help. Get some help. Be open. Don't be old man thinking when it comes to your marriage. Get some help. And if you have gone through the pain and the difficulty of marriage breakdown, all I can say is that God loves you more than you can ever know. God knows what it is to have an unfaithful partner. Did you know that? The book of Hosea in the Old Testament, I'm way off my notes here, talks about Hosea and Goma, who was a prostitute. and She was married to Hosea and she, she left and... And, by, and God, God said, go back. And there's all this, and it's a picture of unfaithful Israel. As God, God knows all about what that's like. God knows what it's like to, to be married to an unfaithful partner. He knows that, and he loves you. He wants to heal you, restore you. And if you're the other side of that, he wants to forgive you as well. And I just want to say, please, if you're married, do all that you can. Do all that you can to live a new man kind of marriage. A new woman kind of marriage. Parenting. How many of you know parenting is one of the hardest things? That All I'll say on this is there are no guarantees when it comes to parenting. Do you know that? And I'm so tired of that, the view in our culture now and in the church that if I do X, Y, and Z, then I will get X, Y, and Z from a kid. Like a sausage thing. There are great books and great resources out there and we love all that and we value all that, but there are no guarantees. The heartbreak of doing all that you can to bring up your kids in the right way. Listen, God is the perfect parent. Agree? God created the perfect environment for his kids. His nature was perfect. The nurture was perfect. His kids disobeyed him and broke his heart. Somehow Christians have got this idea that if my kid's great and going on with God, it's all down to my amazing parenting. That is such a hurtful and shallow approach. I'm sure your parenting contributed to it. But I know some great parents that have brought their kids up amazingly well and their kids have disobeyed that and they've broken their heart. And we have to live with the reality of that. And if today you're a parent whose kids have broken your heart, you're in good company because God is also in that category. And then the final thing is work. And you might think, well, it's not really work because he talks about slavery. Oh, perhaps that is work. You don't know my job. <laughs> when Paul wrote this, the world in which he lived in there were 60 million slaves across the Roman Empire. There was a lot of people because the, the population of the world was really small in those days. 
And those slaves were not just manual workers like we tend to think, but they were doctors and lawyers and political advisors. Nearly everybody that worked was a slave. So when he's talking about slavery and slaves and earthly masters, he's really talking about the world of work. And just very briefly, how many of you work for someone? You're an employee. Let me tell you how new employees, new men, new women employees work. Just very quickly. We work as serving Christ. We work to do a good job because that's the will of God. And we work knowing that our ultimate reward is from God and not from man. And if you're an employer and people work for you, you you work, the new employer, the new man employer, works seeking the welfare of his workers, is not a threat to them, knowing that they also have a boss that they're accountable to. Let's pray.